0: I was sent this article a few days ago by one of uh, our colonial staff members, an article entitled, The World's Luckiest or Unluckiest Man, You Decide, a remarkable uh, series of events in this guy's life. On a cold January day in 1962, he lived in Croatia. His name, Frayn Selak, was traveling by train. It ended up jumping the tracks and plunging into an icy river, killing 17 passengers. He, however, was able to swim to shore. Suffering from a broken arm, shock, bruises, but happy to be alive. One year later, in 1963, Selak was traveling uh, from Zagreb to Jadjika, that's a total guess here, when a door blew off the plane and literally sucked him out of the aircraft. A few minutes later, the plane crashed, killing all the passengers, but Selak woke up in a hospital. He had literally landed in a haystack and ended up with only minor injuries. In 1966, he was riding on a bus and went off the road and into a river. Four people killed, but not Selak. In 1970, he was driving a car that suddenly caught fire. He managed to stop and get out just before the fuel tank exploded and engulfed the car in flames. <laughs> it's only really that funny, but uh, in 1973, a faulty fuel pump sprayed gas all over the engine of his new car, blowing flames through the air vents. He escaped that as well. Around this time, his friends began to call him Lucky. (laughs) I guess they would. That wasn't the end of it. In 1996, he was driving on a mountain road when he came around a bend and saw a truck coming straight for him. He drove the car through a guardrail, jumped out, was snagged by a tree, and literally watched as his car exploded 300 feet below. As you read this, you, like me, are thinking, I'm never getting in a car with this guy ever. (laughs) In 2004, at the age of 75, Selak had become somewhat famous for his narrow escapes. He was hired to star in an Australian TV commercial for Doritos. (laughs) He accepted, but then changed his mind and refused to fly to Sydney for filming. The reason? He didn't want to test his luck, he said. (laughs) You can hardly blame him. You know, I don't know of anything... That's true, but a staff member gave it to me, so I'm assuming they've checked it out. If you lived in ancient times, perhaps no more than 300 years after the flood that covered the earth and creating a new landscape and carving out the Grand Canyon and raising the mighty Himalayan mountains and all of the amazing things, that came out of that catastrophe, including our amazing fossil record that recorded worldwide this sudden and traumatic event, you would have met a man named Job. His nickname would have been anything but Lucky. In fact, the record of Scripture tells us that his name had become a byword, that is a nickname. He would have been, however, in this nickname, considered the most unfortunate man alive. No miraculous escape stories for him. What made it even more traumatic is that he was a devout and sincere and faithful worshiper of God. Unknown to him, Satan had challenged Job's motive for worship. In fact, Lucifer claimed that mankind would only worship God if God paid them off with blessings, with good things. And so God effectively said to Lucifer, take away the good in Job's life and you will see genuine faith demonstrated. And that began a series of severe trials, as you know. Job made no miraculous escapes, no soft haystack to land in or tree to keep him from falling. In fact, it took about 39 seconds for the messengers to deliver the shocking news to Job that he had lost his children, his business, his cattle. It wasn't much longer before Job lost the encouragement of his wife, as well as his own health, to a host of diseases and infirmities that included constant fever, pain, boils, diarrhea, vomiting, itching, loss of appetite and sleep, and deep, unrelenting grief. Throughout the course of his suffering. The heavens have remained silent, no word from God. But some of his close friends arrived from afar who sat with him for a week in stunned silence, but then rose, one after another, to deliver a speech of condemnation and guilt. And Job would endure all of that as well. Now while his patience and his perspective uh, toward God ebbed and flowed, his faith remained intact. Finally, in this dramatic conflict uh, of suffering and God's silence, the condemning speeches ended and all the men sat quietly on the ash heap as if they were utterly exhausted. And Job chapter 38 now changes everything, for it was then that God spoke would you turn there as you are now to these amazing words of comfort, beginning at Job chapter 38, and would you notice the very first few words, then the Lord answered Job. Aren't those great words? You've been waiting for this, haven't you? When God would finally speak and you say, Phew, finally, a word from God. And by the way, the, the word from God to Job is the word of God to you and to me. These are wonderful words, though. By the way, this is the longest speech by our Lord recorded in Scripture. He will deliver amazing words of, of comfort, but not anything like you'd expect if you're familiar with this text. In fact, his speech will entirely surprise the average Christian who's come to expect. Pat answers and rather simple solutions. Would you notice how the voice of God arrives on the scene? Then the Lord answered Job, out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. Stop for a minute. Is it irony that God's voice will come from within the very same thing that took the lives of his children Is it a subtle message that even the the devastating effects of natural disasters are not apart from the controlling voice of God? I believe so. Even though God doesn't call attention to the vehicle of his revelation, in the storm, the voice of God comes. God says in verse 2, Who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's kind of a nice way of saying you guys don't know anything you're talking about. It's good that you're quiet. Then he says to Job, now gird up the loins. Gird up your loins like a man. In other words, get ready for a tough assignment. In Job's day, whenever a a man began a difficult physical task or maybe needed to run or perhaps to fight, he would simply reach down and he'd grab the borders of his garment and he'd pull it up between his knees and tuck it into his sash. Now he could work, he could move unhindered. He was ready for the task at hand. God says, Job, gird up your loins like a man. In other words, there's a difficult task for you. There's a challenging test that I want to give you. I want you, he says here in this text, I want you to... To to answer some questions I have for you and you, I'll ask and you give me some answers. Get ready for the toughest pop quiz in human history. Verse 4, here's how we will start. First question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's a good start, isn't it? Where were you, Job, when I started everything? And Job's going to go, um... Can you make this multiple choice? (laughs) No, no, no. Just give me the answer. And obviously, at the very first question, Job says what? Basically, I don't know. Don't you hate it when a test starts with a whole bunch of questions and you don't even know the first one? You're not even sure where the guy's coming from? What this professor has in mind? But there are questions. Questions and more questions. 77 of them. You could go through your Bible, not now, and just highlight the question marks time and time again. That actually reference more questions than question marks. But before we dive in, I want you to, to, to note what God does not do. God does not condemn Job. He will guide Job. God doesn't justify himself and what he allowed. God doesn't offer any explanation for Job to consider. God doesn't even offer a word of sympathy. God doesn't answer the question of suffering in the world, especially to someone who is experiencing so much suffering. God doesn't explain Satan's accusation. He doesn't say, Job, what you need to know is what's been happening in the heavens. You weren't aware of it. Let me tell you what's going on. God doesn't explain here why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people. I find it incredibly fascinating that God does not provide an explanation. God will simply point to creation. Beginning in chapter 38, when God begins to speak comfort to Job, he doesn't answer any questions He will ask questions and in the asking provide deep answers. Now as an overview, the first speech is going to take us from chapter 38, verse 1, over to chapter 40, verse 2. Then Job's going to give a very brief response. The second speech begins at chapter 40, verse 6. And carries you through to the end of chapter 41. By the way, you can check my markings, but I came up with 63 question marks, 77 questions, 34 objects of creation in these chapters. Now, unlike some of our past sessions where I have covered the entire speech of, say, Eliphaz or Elihu spanning six chapters at a time, I want to slow the train back down. I want want us to take time with this captivating response from God. And I I want you to notice as well, in fact, if you turn to chapter 40 and you look at verse 3, this is Job's first response or answer after God gives him a series of questions. He says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, he says, I don't know the answers. I don't know what to say. Is part of the solution that God is leading Job to understand. He arrives in this whirlwind and he he delivers rapid fire in this pop quiz, one question after another. And Job, at the end of a series of questions, says, I don't know. I don't know. Have you ever had a pop quiz where you knew none of the answers? Not exactly your greatest moment in school, was it? When I was at Dallas, um, I had the privilege of eating with Dr. Dwight Pentecost, one of my favorite professors now in his 80s, still full of energy, spry, teaching one class. He laughed when I told him about one of my embarrassing moments in seminary, which happened to be, there were a couple of them, and one of them was in his class, The Life of Christ... An amazing class. The Words and Works of Jesus Christ was the textbook that we used, and he had written the textbook. He came to, to class without any notes. He had his Bible and his red roll book, and he would lecture for nearly two hours, and he would periodically stop, and he would look at his roll book, and he'd call out a name. It was a large class, and I felt that I was safe. Until that one day when he looked at his roll book and he said, Mr. Davey. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, would you tell us the significance of Christ's answer to the Pharisees in this text before us? I didn't know the answer. And with Dr. Pentecost, you didn't bluff. I said, I'm sorry, Dr. Pentecost, I I don't know the answer. And without batting an eye, he, looking down, said, Well, if you'd read your assignment for today, you would have seen the answer on page 278. Thank you, sir. Not exactly a highlight of my seminary days. When I told him over dinner that I never forgot that event, he thought it was hilarious and (laughs) laughed. I didn't think it was funny, but it was memorable. Job is about to be taken to school. And there's nobody else in the class but him. Job, Mr. Job, yes, sir, stand and and deliver the answers to these questions. God's quiz is going to cover cosmology and oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, zoology. He's going to ask Job about the depths of the ocean, The measurements of the earth, the origin of light, the division of light, the hydrological cycles and atmospheric elements of rain and hail, snow, dew, and frost. He'll ask Job to trace the path of Orion and Pleiades. He'll even ask Job to explain the ways of animals like the the lion the wild donkey the hawk the eagle and the ostrich god will describe the behemoth and the leviathan and say job tell me how to control them and job will say i don't know the answer is god trying to humiliate job no he's actually attempting to develop greater trust And faith in his power and sovereignty and care and grace. But think about it for a moment. Here sits a man, devastated. He is diseased. He has lost his children and his health and his finances. He's bankrupt. He's bereaved. I think at this point he would have been at the edge of irretrievable, irreparable bitterness. And God says, I want you to think about an ostrich. Consider the stars. Explain to me the ways of a wild donkey. And, and I'm, I'm, as I'm reading this thinking, that's not exactly what I would have expected. Why does God want to take him to the zoo? What I want to do today is simply reveal to you a little bit of why creation is more than a paragraph in our creed. Why it is absolutely necessary to your relationship with Christ and your hope in the midst of trials. Why God would come to Job and take him on a tour of the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, the longest speech from God delivers to us the truth that creation and creationism is not some incidental viewpoint. It is a foundational piece of our salvation. And if that sounds to you like an exaggeration, it is only because the church has, in our generation, bowed to the pressure of evolution and the disregard of Scripture. And so that strikes us as, Does it really matter that much? I want to lay the groundwork today for why it does. I got an email from a gentleman in our church this past winter and I hung on to it. It illustrates this very point. He wrote, My wife especially appreciates colonial when she has to be away on a Sunday, which happens periodically. Yesterday was such a Sunday. She was in Charleston, South Carolina for the weekend and chose to attend a a congregational church nearby with a friend. As it happened, yesterday was, quote, Transfiguration and Evolution Sunday, end quote, for that church. You may have read in the newspaper that churches across the country are having Evolution Sunday in February in honor of Charles Darwin's birthday. I had no idea what we've been missing here. Huh? <laughs> Can you imagine churches honoring the evolutionary principles of a man rather than the creation of God? This man said in his email that the clergyman actually preached that Jesus' transfiguration was just one more step in his evolution. He said his wife ended up getting up and walking out during the sermon. Good for her. And I hope she walked out rather loudly. (laughs) The reason the average person is surprised to discover God's comfort through his creative handiwork is because the average person doesn't believe God created anything. Just all evolved with enough time Or that God sort of jump-started it and allowed billions of years for life to evolve. There is no comfort in that because that is man-made. It strips God of power and meaning. And it plays havoc with the words of Scripture from the very beginning pages. There isn't anything more pivotal to our faith than the very first few words of the Bible. Say them with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps Satan has launched his fiercest attack against that phrase. Today, theory after theory abounds. They're not new. In fact, by 1808, there were cataloged at least 80 theories of origins. Darwin just happens to be one of them. Even those today, however, who claim to be evangelicals are holding to an old earth belief That's gaining in popularity known as framework hypothesis. This is the belief that the days of creation are simply overlapping stages of the long evolutionary process. Dr. Meredith Klein of Westminster Theological Seminary is propagating this view. And the view basically states that the days of creation in Genesis 1 are symbolic expressions that have nothing to do with time. It's just poetry. Uh, The formation of the earth took billions of years, and the record of Scripture is simply a metaphorical framework that would overlay our scientific understanding of creation. God simply guided the process of evolution. Listen, if chapter 1 can be written off as metaphor simply because it's too fantastic to take literally, why believe in the flood? Why believe in the Tower of Babel and the creation of, of distinct races? Why believe any other biblical miracle? I mean, How fantastic is the virgin birth? How fantastic is a literal, physical resurrection? How, how fantastic is the atonement of Christ on the cross for you? Why believe any of it? That's the point. Thus, defending creationism is not some secondary issue. It is vital for the believer. In fact, let me give you three reasons why as we set the stage. Number one, without a literal creation, we have no Scripture to trust. One of the best ways to interpret Scripture, by the way, is to let Scripture do the interpreting for us. What does the rest of Scripture say about Genesis 1, for instance? Well, the Scriptures repeatedly... Authenticate the integrity of God's creation of, of Adam and Eve as one example. Not amoebas that eventually evolved into a man and a woman. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said in Mark 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.13, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. In every passage of Scripture referring to the Genesis account, every one of them treats creation as an historical, completed, literal event. God is the author of Scripture, and he was, by the way, the only eyewitness to those first movements, wasn't he? And he said it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? was God. He was in the beginning, the word being Christ, later on in the chapter makes it very clear, with God. Now in case we we didn't get it, uh, he says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Pretty clear? Listen, every time the New Testament refers to creation, it is always to a past, completed, work, an immediate work of God, not an ongoing billions of years process of evolution. In fact, the entire Old Testament system of Sabbath worship, that covenant sign, hinged upon a literal understanding of a six-day creation. For, as Exodus twenty eleven records, in six days the Lord made the heavens, not six eons, not six sessions of billions of years, but six Days. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. So, therefore, Israel, you do likewise. Without creation, we have no scripture to fully trust. Secondly, without creation, we have no gospel to preach. When the apostles went out and preached, we tend to forget the fact that they were preaching to an evolutionary pantheistic culture. Buddhism had already reached the Mediterranean world by the time of Christ. And you throw in the Stoics and the Gnostics who believe neither in one supreme personal God, creating God nor in special creation. These were the scholars and the philosophers of Paul's day. And you go back and you read through their messages to their culture, and it is laced with the truth of creationism. Acts 14, and for Paul cried out to these philosophers, scholars of that, that uh, assembly, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In Athens, are worshiping all these gods and they have their, their, their views of origins and they have even a pedestal periodically placed to the unknown God just in case they've left one out. And Paul comes along and he says, that unknown God, let me introduce you to him. Who is that unknown God? He is the God, Paul preached, who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives life and breath to all people, listen to this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. Who would that one man be? Acts 17, 23 to 26. How? I wasn't there. But he said, according to scripture, he spake. And it was done. Psalm 33, verse 9. I love the way John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put it. He said, God created all there is, and he didn't even have to try. The intellectual establishment of nearly every nation has repudiated creationism. And in our generation has accepted some theory of evolutionism. The myths of evolution dominate today Hinduism Buddhism, Taoism, Shinnuism, animism. It has even crept into Islam and Judaism and liberal Christianity. So that no outcry existed when Pope John Paul II got up before the Academy of Sciences several years ago and opened the door to the, to the mechanisms of evolution. Theistic evolution. It's no surprise that Satan would attack the word of God in this because without creation the reliability of scripture is shattered and our gospel is basically rendered powerless without creation there's no gospel message we have no creator god we have no god consider the fact that if genesis 1 to 3 is not a literal account of origins and adam really wasn't the first man and the forefather of the human race then there are many other things we throw out the window one, the Bible's explanation of how sin entered the world, that's just one more myth. But it's worse than that. If we didn't fall in Adam as our representative, we cannot be redeemed in Christ, the representative of the new race of redeemed sinners, now saints. Paul wrote it to the Corinthians this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two: For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ the second Adam, all shall be made alive. Paul can't stress it enough. He writes to the believers in Rome, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Again, who is that one man? Adam. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, capital M, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. For if by the sin of the one, Adam, death reigned much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through Jesus Christ. This is the crux of the gospel. The creation of that first head, Adam. And the creative power of the second Adam, Christ, In whom we stand. Without a literal creation, we have no scripture to trust. We don't know whether to believe this or that. That's a little too fantastic. That's a little bit too much of a stretch of my imagination. I guess we'll believe in this part or maybe that part. We have no way to discern or divide the text. Without a literal creation, we have no gospel to preach. Third, without a literal creation, we have no heaven to reach. The truth is evolution eliminates the God of Genesis And by so doing, it eliminates the God of Revelation. The God of Revelation will recreate a new heaven and a new earth by the word of his power. This is the world to come. The promise of a new creation is portrayed in Scripture as the result of God's powerful word. Not billions of years. There are not gigantic oysters Somewhere producing these gigantic pearls that will one day be the gates of heaven. It's done. When John was given a tour of heaven, there was not scaffolding everywhere. It was finished, done by the word of his power. You have trouble believing he created this earth. I don't know what you're going to believe about the new earth and the new heaven. In fact, according to the Scripture, it is the very crux of our faith. According to Hebrews, it is the basis of our faith that God created out of nothing, everything. And if you have trouble believing that, you're going to have trouble believing he's going to create a new Jerusalem and suspend it in space above the old city. You'll have trouble understanding not only the new creation that 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us we are now, that God can take a sinner, redeem him, and literally provide in him justification, make him right before God, ultimately give him a glorified body. Talk about a miracle. Glorified body. We're going to be able to eat and fly. Isn't that going to be great? won't hold us down, slow us us down. We're, We're new creations in that glorified state, Jesus Christ, the creator of it all. There were hints of this when Jesus Christ performed miracles on earth. He, he bypassed the ordinary processes of time to create. His, his miracles were, were, were a million-fold in their demonstration. Consider healing a lame person who's been lame from birth you don't just say get up there is in that miracle of saying get up everything from from the mental capability to know how those legs work to muscle memory when when Jesus Christ said get up they with balance immediately without practice began to walk. He not only healed the disease, but he deposited instantaneously into their brains and bodies all the necessary wiring and memory and history and experience so that they could get up and walk. When he healed the blind, what an amazing creative act. Science is only catching up to what it must have the amazing a part of this I've read inside the human eye are 107 million cells. I think I'm down to about 95 million. That's why i got to wear these things here. But about 107. Even with his limited knowledge, Charles Darwin admitted that the human eye caused him to doubt his theory more than anything else. The more we learn, he knew so little about it. But the more we know about it, it's even more amazing that God would create us with this capability and heal those who can't see. And wire everything together. Seven million cells are cones, we know, loaded to fire off a message to the brain whenever a photon of light crosses its path. The other 100 million cells are rods. They're capable of distinguishing a thousand shades of color. The human brain will receive millions of reports simultaneously from eye cells. The brain absorbs, sorts, organizes them all to give you the image of what you are looking at. Christ was demonstrating a fraction of his understanding of, of human anatomy and function that needed restoring and refashioning and, and and hooking up in order for somebody to see. And he did it with the word of his power. It wasn't the evolving of cells that gave the capability of that one to see? It was immediate. It was sudden. It was breathtaking. He revealed the same elimination of processes when he attended the wedding. You remember? He turned water into what? Wine. The wine had run out. He told servants to pour water into the water pots and then for the servants to draw from the water pots and take them to the head waiter. Somewhere between pouring and drawing the water turned into wine. All the marks of age and maturity, he completely bypassed the processes of fermentation and the aging process, and you had wine instantly. If you had a scientist look at that substance, they would have said, it takes certain amounts of time for this to happen. And Jesus Christ did it with the power of his word the study of DNA has exploded on the scene. this one more amazing, creative, magnificent part of what God has done. I've read that your DNA has enough information in it to fill six million pages, but those strands are also so small they could fit into a tiny ice cube. However, if your DNA was unwound and connected end to end, it would reach the sun and back. 400 times. Darwin knew nothing of DNA. And the amazing depository of information and knowledge that you have. This is the amazing mind of God. And here's a man that's lost everything. Everything. What will God say? Job, I need to remind you of what I have created. What I have made by the power of my word. Let's take a tour of the created order. We'll go all the way out to the furthest stars and we'll come back to the planet and we'll look at the animal kingdom. This is who you are, Job. You fit into all of this and this is who I am. I created it all. I know everything. I understand everything. And this will bring great comfort and assurance Job and it was encouraging so you know for him not to have the answers it did not humiliate him it awed him a college student went to class to take a final exam at the end of a semester I read recently Stephen Lawson in his commentary told about this to his amazement he didn't know any of the answers not one he had no possibility of passing the exam so he attempted to win the professor's mercy with humor how many teachers do we have in here? Does that work? No. Okay, I didn't think so. At any rate, he wrote across the top of the exam page, quote, only God knows the answer to these questions. Merry Christmas. <laughs> he turned into paper and went home for the Christmas break. During the holidays, just following Christmas, the student received in the mail his exam that had been graded by his professor. At the top, it read in big letters. In that case, God gets 100 and you get zero. Happy New Year. (laughs) Job is going to be asked 77 questions. And they will reveal he has none of the answers. But it will reveal that God gets 100. He knows everything. There are going to be several lessons that will emerge from this pop quiz from God to Job. Let me give you three of them very quickly and then we're going to dash away. Number one, first, if God created us, he can save us. Let me add an addendum to that first point. If he can fashion us, he can forgive us. What the evolutionist destroys for themselves is the only personal God capable of taking them and by his grace making them a new creation instantly, newly born, a member of a new race, redeemed, capable of forgiving us. Secondly, if God is powerful enough to create the universe... He is powerful enough to control the universe. What we're about to discover as God begins to speak comfort is that the solution to suffering is not a proposition. It is a person. Third, if God can create this existing universe, he can create an eternal universe. If God is powerful enough to create the universe, he's powerful enough to control the universe. If he created us, he can save us. If he fashioned us, he can forgive us. Ultimately, Job, and you and me, this points us to our source of security, God. We do not worship this awe-inspiring creation. The unbeliever does that. He refuses to thank God and he worships the tree, the river, the waterfall. Now we're pointed ultimately and finally to a person. And I want you to listen as Peter writes this amazing text that I had never really quite seen until this study. He said this, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Our hope of getting through suffering is related to the fact that we can entrust our souls to our faithful creator. I love that. God created all there is God controls all that he has created. God coincides what he controls to bring about his creative concerns. And we can trust him. Why? Well, this is just for starters. But this is a great place to end. Because he is the creator. God. Father, thank you for this text and the amazing wisdom that we are in awe of. We would have never assumed you'd begin here that you would answer Job in this way. But as we study it, we come to understand what your creative power means and what it means to us. How it relates to our origins, how it relates to our future. We thank you, Father, that by your grace we are even now new creations headed toward a new creation developing us a greater sense even as we drive away and we look at the clouds and the sky and the trees and the animals. That This is your demonstration to us. You are indeed, as Paul said in Romans, powerful. We, because of your word, know so much more than that. We know you are not only powerful, we know you personally. And we've come to praise you and thank you.